Hey, this is Jeff Benjamin along with Bruce Kelly here with the Investment News Podcast. Another week coming at you. How you doing, Bruce? I'm good, Jeff. How you doing? You know what? I'm doing well. It's the summertime. It's uh, we're how was your week? Uh, well, it's going great so far. It's uh, it's warm down here in North Carolina, but we're past the Fourth of July, so the fireworks have subsided for now. How's uh, how's New York City? New York City is uh, is good. It's a little crazy uh, with COVID. You know, people are all out wearing their masks, doing their shopping, and and uh, seeing people out on the street corner and the like in my neighborhood. But uh, the weather's been great. It's been a little hot, but hey, it's July, so. All right. All right. Well, we're we're rolling ahead with uh, another episode. Um, this week, we... What do we got coming up this we week? We got... We're going to talk taxes. We're going to start taxes. Uh, Joe Biden has uh, rolled out his tax plan right. uh, for his presidential campaign. Uh, along with that, some research that uh, I worked on this week about uh, a potential transaction tax that gets kicked around usually every election year and uh we'll talk about that financial transaction financial tax. transaction tax exactly yep um and then we're going to talk about uh mergers and acquisitions it's been a very interesting year and i know you have some good research on that it sure has yeah mega rias coming at you yep and then we have a special guest for kind of the bottom third of the show our new tech reporter nicole casperson i love it uh she's going to talk about this tick TikTok app that has given uh, the financial services industry fits, especially Wells Fargo. And she's going to tell us what it's like to be hired in a new job in the midst of a global pandemic. And I understand she has, I know I haven't met her in person yet, and you haven't. And from what I understand, I don't think anyone on staff yeah, has met her face to face. Even our boss, uh, George Moriarty, who hired her, hasn't met her. Even George, our boss. So, yep. with that, Let's, uh, shall we roll into it, Bruce? Taxes? Yeah, Talk what's taxes? Up, tell me something about Biden's tax plan and this uh, potential financial uh, transaction tax. I read your article and some other articles about this. And what is this tax? And how do the Democrats, if the Democrats win, as you noted in your story, you got to win first. <laughs> yeah. The Democrats yeah. have to win to create the tax, right? And uh, what will the Democrats do with this revenue that they raise from the tax? Well, let's go back to the beginning. Right. First of all, you're right. This is not something that you're going to see proposed by the Republicans. No way. It's a financial transaction tax. It gets kicked around It hurts Wall Street. Periodically. It hurts Wall Street well, if this goes through, right? There you go. It hurts everyone, actually, because mm-hmm. it creates what they call friction. Ouch. And, and friction is is bad in, in markets. Um, there, what what it what's being proposed? And Bernie Sanders proposed something, and somebody else, I think, on the Democratic ticket, right. one of the run, um, people running for president, including Bloomberg, proposed uh, financial transaction taxes in the range of half a percentage point, zero point one percentage point. And I what saw these ten. Things- ba- I saw some. I saw an article actually by a former colleague of ours, Greg Iacursi. Remember young Greg, right? Old Kenny Loggins. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, he, he said the average Democratic proposal had around 10 basis points on a $10,000 worth of yep. a transaction or so. So it would be if you traded, you know, you bought 100 shares of stock at 100 bucks each, that would be $10,000. You'd be taxed 10 bucks on that. Right. Or so. That's what he said the average <clears throat> Right. It, it It's always presented that way as... Because in you know in those kind of numbers, it's not 
it doesn't seem like a lot of money. And it's actually often not a lot of money, but the amount of money isn't as important as the what I was saying, the friction it creates. Because when you have anything that slows down the flow of this trading activity, it creates wider spreads. And these things can get passed all the way down. They will get passed all the way down to the retail consumer. For example, there is a little known tax already in existence of a transaction tax that is in place at the SEC, which helps fund their regulatory oversight. Yeah, now, I saw this that in your called, story. I, I didn't yeah, know. I didn't know uh, that even existed. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's called. Tell uh, us a little bit about that and how it works. It's, this, it's basically referred to as the Section Thirty One fee. It is at zero point zero zero two one percent. So. <laughs> On a million dollars worth of trading, that would come to $22.10, which, again, in $22.10 for somebody who trains a million dollars doesn't usually seem like a lot of money. But Now, who pays that? That gets paid by, first of all, it gets passed to the the self-regulatory organizations who pass it to the broker-dealers who pass it on down to the individual traders. So it's listed usually as a regulatory fee on the, uh, on the transaction form. So anyway, the, back to the, the financial transaction taxes that are proposed. And again, keep in context, these are just proposals. Right. This would require a lot of momentum. Democratic proposals. Yes, democratic mostly proposals. democratic proposals. Right. Um, I'm not saying there wouldn't be some Republican support, but these are these are generally historically they come from the Democratic side of the aisle, and what they tend to do they they're usually you know to raise revenue of some sort. And and guy a smart guy I talked to David uh, I'm sorry Dennis Kelleher Better Markets he made the case that there's nothing in his mind necessarily wrong with these uh, for financial transaction taxes, but. He said they should be specifically targeted for a specific objective. Right. Uh, Mike Bloomberg, for example, when he was running for president, he wanted to introduce a transaction tax just to fund infrastructure in general. Keller says that the problem with that is it's it's too broad and, and y- y- it's harder to make the case for something that's going to impact the financial services industry and the financial markets for something that doesn't doesn't uh, have a positive impact on those financial markets. What, what? Well, uh, you use better a lot mar- of airports. You know, we need. Uh, you before the COVID, you were in and out of airports all the time. You know, you know, we need an infrastructure uh, well, remake I, in this country desperately. Yeah, I, I'm. You know, not denying that anybody's ever been in LaGuardia, an airport perpetually under construction, yes. understands that the need for infrastructure. But what I'm saying is, this is going to have an impact on markets. And, and all taxes do. I mean, basic economics is if you want something to grow, you subsidize it. If you want something to slow, you tax it. So if, if we're going to make that sacrifice to, to kind of create friction in the financial markets, there, there should be some kind of an upside. And Kelleher of Better Markets says what, what they have actually proposed is a tax on cancellations. And cancellations are trades that are right. put out by these algorithmic and high-frequency traders. The high-frequency guys, And yeah. they're canceled almost immediately. They're canceled so quickly, you couldn't execute the transaction if you wanted to buy their offer. And they're putting these things out there because it's it's ways that 
Kelleher says is just manipulating the markets. They're trying to make it make a security or a, an ETF look more attractive to buyers than it actually is. So that's you know he says if we put you know a tax on those kind of things that it would dramatically reduce that and it would clean things up in the markets a little bit. So that would be a tax that might, it would might have a positive impact on these things. He says like ninety plus percent of uh, trade uh, offers are are canceled because of this just preponderance of of high frequency traders and uh, these algorithms. Right. I mean, I'm all for attacks on. Uh, high frequency traders, either you know, for canceling orders or for going through with orders, putting a tax on people who trade more than ten or twenty or fifty transactions or hundred transactions a month. Mm-hmm. Guys who use an algorithm in a computer, I'm not in favor of a tax. Even though I am a Democrat, I'm not in favor of a tax <laughs> on mom and pop investors and their advisors. Basically, you know, yeah, not at all. Well. It- yeah, even even uh, people's four hundred one k's in this country are sacred. You know, <laughs> it, 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 it's uh, a sacrosanct thing, and it should not be toyed with in, in this manner. I believe. Yeah, financial transaction taxes would go all the way down. They would. They could even have an impact on all this free trading that we're seeing. Right. The trend toward free ETF trading and right. stuff like that. I mean, is the kinda, the bond trading is the most expensive trading? in the markets right now, right? I mean, when you're buying and selling muni bonds, you have the markups on the muni bonds, right? And, uh, and I don't I don't know. That's not my specific area of expertise. Right. And I don't buy a lot of individual muni bonds. Right. Uh, when it gets to fixed income, I got to stick to the funds because uh, right. you're fighting with big institutional investors when you get into that arena. But um, well, that's anyway, another area that, of income for retirees, though, is, is uh, municipal bonds. I mean, you know, that in my family, you know, all the all the great aunts and great uncles and all the, you know, a lot of people have a lot of money in municipal bonds. So, yep. Hey, Bruce, what is going on with M&A activity so far this year? Uh, We're talking about RIA, Registered Investment Advisor, M&A. Right, Jeff? Yes, that's correct. Um, Now, I hope you don't think I'm stepping on your toes, my friend, (laughs) because you're the RIA guy. And I'm the BD guy. But from time to time, I do dip into the RA marketplace. And I always uh, like to look at your stories, of course, and your past research to kind of give me a direction and a place to go to. But it's no mystery, I think, to anyone that with firms dealing with the COVID pandemic uh, in the first half of the industry, the, the RIA firms, that is, that the white hot marketplace for mergers and acquisitions has slowed down considerably in the first half of 2020. When I did a story about mega RIAs mm-hmm. uh, last September, people, multiple people described the marketplace to me as white hot, right? Yep. A real seller's market. And firms were RIA, if you had a $500 million or a billion dollar RIA, you could walk away with uh, 100% of the money paid up front to you also, or, or 80% or 90% and 10% in escrow for a year later or something like that. Yep. So you were getting a lot of, you were getting a good valuation and you were getting a, a lot of the money or most or all the money up front. But deals so far among the mega RIAs have dropped by a third, right? So this is research from Dave DeVoe's shop. They're a consultancy and 
you know, mergers and acquisitions yep. firm out on the West Coast. Among the mega RIAs that they track, that's uh, Mariner, uh, Focus Financial, Mercer, Mariner, Wealth Partners, Cap Trust, Hightower, etc. In the first half of 2020, there were 31 deals compared to 46 in the first half of 2019. A lot of the decrease, according to DeVoe, comes from a, a sharp decline by the people over at Focus Financial, which went public two years ago, as you well know, mm-hmm. in what was an IPO that wasn't quite as successful initially, I think, as they wanted it to be, but uh, has come kind of roaring back. The share price I was looking at today for Focus has come roaring back since the March lows. Focus did 14 deals in the first half of 2019. And in the first half of this year, they've only done three. Yeah. So they account for the lion's share of the deals that haven't been done so far in 2020, where the decline in the deals, um, I haven't had a chance to call them up, ask them what's going on and the like. But in my conversations with other uh, CEOs and owners of these mega firms, the firms with more than five or 10 billion really in assets that do multiple acquisitions a year, it's just been tough. You know, to, it was, I think it was tough initially at first to get these deals done. People were on Zoom. They didn't know what to do on Zoom. How do you get Zoom yeah. to work? Does it work? Is it the appropriate thing to do? Should we try to accommodate people in a different way? And so I think even though the first half of the year we saw a slowdown, I think in in these RIA uh, acquisitions, there's a couple of factors that are going to make the second half of the year take off again and get back to this white hot level, namely that uh, first off, buyers or sellers of RIAs, the owners of these RIAs, had the bejesus scared out of them Mm -hmm. with the COVID, right? Because they saw their assets plummet in March, right? By 30, 40, the market was down 40% at one point in March, right? Uh, so close to that, yeah. Thirty-five, Closer 40%. to thirty, but yeah, yeah. Yep. So people said, "What am I waiting for? Uh-huh. I better sell. <laughs> I better sell this thing." And then, secondly, you have a whole mess of new buyers, yeah, in the market too. More private equity money, yeah, more pension fund money, more Canadian uh, fund money coming into the marketplace right now. And like I said, you you know this marketplace very well. So the first half of the year was a slowdown. It wasn't a stop, though. It wasn't a complete stop. No. And in this, it, but it has set up the, the COVID has almost set up the second half of the year to explode. So I just want to ask your, yeah. you know, yeah, get there, your thoughts on that. There are a lot of factors at play in what has been an incredibly interesting and unique year for M&A activity in the RIA space. And, yep. and, and yeah, you're right. I write about this all the time. I think I've written two or three stories on RIA M&A this week. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you you referenced DeVoe and Company's data. Uh, there are about five companies that do uh, quarterly reports on M&A activity. And the, the thing that's unique is you'd think it would be such a cut and dry, black and white kind of a count, but it's not because all these companies count them differently. Some exclude comp- uh, deals below a certain size, some differentiate between different types of RIAs. So I'm going to reference some data I wrote about this week from Fidelity. 
Now, Fidelity showed 14 deals, and we're always talking about announced deals because these things close a lot uh, several months after they're announced. So these all these firms, when they when they talk about deals, they're talking about announced deals. Well, Fidelity reported not 14 deals announced in June, which is makes it the best month so far by their count. Uh, the second best was January with 13 deals, and and they're we're still below for the first six months of the year below the historic growth pattern of right. of increasing deal volume, but because this year it was dragged down heavily. By March, April, and May, which had three deals in March, three in April, and four in May. Right. So it was an extreme drop. But the pickup in June is what has a lot of people paying attention because they they know that this is pent up deal activity. These deals don't. Somebody doesn't decide today they're going to sell their business and they're they they sell it tomorrow. You know, you have to have these things in the works. And you're right. The the pullback in March and the volatility had a lot of these advisors that maybe are sitting on these firms saying, I'm going to squeeze whatever I can out of this thing. And then they see the, the market take a dump and they say, well, maybe, you know, I better take this a little more seriously because I don't have a succession plan. And I'm 94 years old or something like that. You know, it's it's it does wake people up. But the people that I'm talking to, same people, same type of people you're talking to, they say that the momentum is there and these things should pick up in the second half of 2020, barring any other extreme weird 2020 events, could look a lot like or even better than the second half of, of last year. Because keep in mind, the big buyers, as you're referring to as the mega RIAs or some people call yeah. them the aggregators or consolidators, yeah. These are these are companies that are they have entire teams and divisions just set up to make acquisitions. Right. But what pulls the deals offline is these RIAs themselves. They're smaller. Sometimes they don't have, you know, they're they're focusing on the market right now and their clients and they can't, you know, they if they're going to they're looking at a selling their business, that gets pushed on the back burner while they got to call all their clients and tell them you know, that their portfolios are okay, that that's still paying attention and stuff. So that's where the slowdown comes from. But but I agree with you. This is a trend that is not going away for a long, long time because there's a lot of small firms out there that are that are going to just continue to get gobbled up. I think something that's interesting too in, in speaking with people this week is that I made this mistake in February and March thinking that this financial crisis was going to be the same as the last financial crisis, Yeah. Right? Yeah. And we always think back, right? Because the last financial crisis played out over months and months, you know, years, you know, uh-huh. of reporting, you know. And because the Fed acted so quickly in injecting that three trillion of liquidity into the marketplace in, in March, a- April and May, um, the markets have become so stable. Now we have to wait for the economic fallout. Are there going to be bankruptcies? Are businesses going to shut down? Right. Are people going to, is unemployment going to remain high? All that kind of, all those kinds of dire economic forces at work. But if you think back to the RIA industry in 2008, Uh (laughs) we wouldn't be talking about mega RIAs or anything, right? I mean, I was talking to Brian Hamburger, you know, the the Hamburger Law Firm and- and, Yeah, Market Council. Yep. Market Council, yep. So it's just such a different marketplace now. You had no private equity money back then, almost none. Yeah. Right? It was just starting to become, the RAAs were just starting to be, become targets of private equity. Maybe you had, I think Hightower 
was up and running back then, United Capital, uh, Focus, maybe. Those were the really the big three, you know, who right. were the acquirers or the roll-ups or whatever you want to call them. That's what and, we called them back then. Remember the roll-ups? Yeah, they hated that. <laughs> Sounds like a sandwich or something, you know? And uh, But you had no private equity money. And you had really a limited number of big players who saw an opportunity uh-huh. in this market, and you didn't have the technology available widely that you have today. Yeah. It wasn't a mature industry yet, you know, and it is, it's a much different industry it, in 2020 than it was in 2000. It, it's different in also these mega RIAs, these big firms, they don't just let you become part of a bigger operation. They actually have platforms and technology and all that stuff. Yeah. And and the, the private equity is a great point. That y- you almost kind of wonder what took private equity so long to start pouring money into this space. Well, they were buying broker dealers. You got to remember right. the private equity but, guys were buying, you know, LPL <laughs> right. in 2005 because they could see an LPL and understand it and see the scale of it. Right. Uh huh. And hence the profitability of it ultimately. Yeah. Right. But now they see the RIA space, this asset based fee model and say, right. You know, how can this go wrong? We put money into these firms that are buying them up. We bring them all in there. We got more money. We got scale. So it's less work. And all these firms, uh, even the ones that said, you know, we're not taking cap trust was a good example. They were a recent uh, right. uh, seller of a piece of their business to private equity. And every time one of these big firms kind of crosses that line and takes a private equity partnership, they always say, oh, these are silent partners. They're not going to be, you know, really all over. They're just giving us some money and they're going to then they're going to be gone in seven years. Right. To me, it's like if you're in private equity, I haven't seen anybody back out of private equity yet. The only way to get out of a private equity deal is either go public or partner with another private equity person. Right. Yeah, I'm going to buy that back from them. And it's not a bad thing, but, um, you know, it's almost like every time I see a big RIA get in bed with a private equity firm, they almost feel like they have to apologize for it. And, you know, to me, it's just like a bank loan, except these people are professional at running businesses and they're probably going to make you more efficient unless they go in there and try and just strip it down. But I've not seen any evidence of that yet. Yeah, that's a it's a different private equity model than 30 years ago or 35 years ago with the leverage buyout boys. Right. You know, they really do seem to be investing in the businesses. I know, you know, I know LPL very well. They've done a good job investing. You know, the private equity funds have done a, a terrific job investing in that, you know, 10, 15 years ago, building the platform, taking it public. When they went public, the all the employees, uh, long term employees and, and partners, managing directors, they all cashed out first. They were first in line to cash out. Then the private equity funds waited to cash out and eventually did. You know? Right. I think you can look at Goldman Sachs buying United Capital last year for $750 million in cash as what these yep. mega firms aspire to. This is ultimately uh, what they are moving towards. They can be approached by a big Wall Street institution or go it alone. Get more private equity funding and remain a regional or national player in the wealth management business. Yeah, that that Morgan Stanley United Capital thing. That's Goldman Sachs. That's a new level of mega, though. I'm sorry, Goldman Sachs. That's that's mega mega there. Yes, that's. Uh, <laughs> but uh, anyway, what do you say we bring on our special guest, Nicole 
Casperson. Sounds good to uh, me. Going to talk to us about TikTok and all the what's TikTok? Uh, uh, you know what? We're going to find <laughs> out. <laughs> Okay, Nicole, how you doing? Welcome to the Investment News Podcast. We want to hear about your research into TikTok and uh, what's going on over there at Wells Fargo. Can you sum it up for us? Of course. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, As the cub reporter at Investment News, (laughs) I'm honored to join our most senior reporters on the Investment News Podcast. So thank you for having me, gentlemen. In regards to Wells Fargo and TikTok, Basically, Wells Fargo identified employees that downloaded the app on their corporate-owned phones. Nicole, let when me I interrupt f- you. Let me interrupt of you. What is, first of all, what is TikTok? I'm an old guy. I'm an old middle-aged guy. I got yeah, he two is. 13-year-old kids. They're on their phones all the time. I'm just trying to catch up with Instagram, you know? And now you <laughs> drop this TikTok on me? What is Insta TikTok what? and why would a why if my 13-year-old kids have TikTok, why would a Wells Fargo first tell me what it is and then why would a Wells Fargo banker have TikTok on his uh, Wells Fargo phone? Bruce, it's like you read my mind. That is exactly my first thought. What in the world are bankers doing on TikTok and right. why would they think it's okay to download on a business phone? But before yeah. we get into that, so TikTok for our audience that doesn't know um, essentially is uh, it's a platform where f- anyone can sign up and post like 10 second maybe 10 second videos um, of anything really so they could dance they can do cooking tutorials um, I see it as a platform for Gen Z that's really bored and that generation extra likes to share everything going on in their life. Um, Also, I think celebrities like the platform because, especially in quarantine, it's a way for them to connect to their fans. So the the videos are super short, though, Yes. And the trick with TikTok is really the interface. So you aren't uh, moving to different channels or anything like that. It's just a feed that constantly is scrolling. So you just watch video after video after video until you physically exit out. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> Sounds exhausting. <laughs> so why the Wells Fargo? Why would a Wells Fargo employee or Wells Fargo banker have something like that on his or her phone? It doesn't seem very work related, right? I don't think so. Uh, the The only thing I could <laughs> the only thing I could possibly Wells Fargo have enough problems. I mean, they just posted a two billion dollar loss, <laughs> right? They got a brand new CEO. Oh, they, they ran into all kinds. Of, you know, Off they the were turnbuckle. They were, They've been banged up by every regulator <laughs> under the sun for, you know, forging client documents to open up credit cards and these other things. Hey, hey, Bruce, I think you're putting Nicole in a position of trying to, <laughs> having not, to defend well, Wells Fargo. I'm why, not sure that's, that's what that's, he's, that's, that's he's trying to do. Guys. Why would Wells Fargo have uh, employee <laughs> or banker have this thing on, on his or her phone? Maybe they were really looking into cooking tutorials and wanted to spice up. The- Doesn't seem like a great use of time at work. Well, for, for me, that's what's key, right? Yeah. So not only is it a bit strange that bankers would want to enjoy the fun of TikTok, um, what's more key here is the fact that they thought it was okay to download it on a business phone. Right. I, yeah. I, I don't know. I'm lost with that one. That's what I now, don't I, I, I read your story, and I don't mean to monopolize the questions here, Jeff, 
I apologize. But I read your story <laughs> and there were a lot of great points about security when you mm-hmm. download any app, not just TikTok, but more broadly, if an advisor or someone working at a financial advice firm downloads such an app and 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 there is a security issue, right? Exactly. So that's what makes it a big deal because when you download any app on any smartphone and that basically turns and conditions agreement, right? Um, when you press I accept, which admittedly, I'm definitely one of those people that will just press I accept just to move forward because I don't want to read an entire terms and agreement um, and conditions document. Um, you are agreeing to the app developer's usage of essentially every piece of data in your phone. So TikTok just automatically collects your internet, your network activity, your IP address, your geolocation, your messaging history, your browser history. And that is what is concerning. And they make that clear as day on their website. Right. Yeah, but don't they all do that, Nicole? I mean, to some degree, I always assume any app I have on my phone is gathering information that I probably wouldn't give them if they didn't make me sign that document. Why, why is this one so controversial? It's controversial because the app is owned by a Chinese tech company called ByteDance. So naturally, the Trump administration is looking into possibly banning the app in America because of concerns that TikTok is a national security threat. We don't have to go into down that rabbit hole, but I think that's where the connection <laughs> potentially lies. But that's what TikTok is specifically uh, gaining, um, you know, headlines. But I think what the bigger picture here is is overall, if you work for a big bank like Wells Fargo, who already has enough problems to begin with, you know, maybe think twice about downloading any app on a corporate owned phone where you likely have a high amount of very sensitive client data. Yeah. That's why I, um, I'm sticking to the weather app and words with friends. Those are probably both safe, right? Other than that, I'm, you know, I use the camera sometimes and, uh, there's a level on there now I see and a calculator. So I'm, I'm super happy. Nicole, let's let's talk a little bit about the other part of this uh, your podcast uh, debut kind of introduction here. You're brand new at investment news. Um, you can tell us about that. You you we're taught we want to know what it's like to switch jobs or find a job in the middle of a pandemic and start working. I just you know, tell us how long you've been here, and I, as I understand, you haven't even met the person who hired you. Yeah, in how did person. that work? Right. Like, how do you go about getting job interviews and doing all that basic stuff, you know, and, and Mm -hmm. so for me, I enjoyed the process, uh, because it was remote and the flexibility behind that. But in a nutshell, our chief content officer, George Moriarty reached out to me and I did a phone interview with him. A few days later, I did a phone call with our managing editor, Paul Curcio. And the next day, George offered me the job. So the process took less than a week, which is very nice. And that's fast. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. And I think that's super fast. Yeah. Super fast. And I think what um, is notable is for me, I had a job working at another trade pub before I came to IN. So 
Being able to chat with George and Paul after work hours was super helpful. No stress working around my old job schedule. I didn't have to get a suit pressed or get dolled up for an in-person interview. No commuting uh, and worrying about being late or what have you. So taking those stresses away. Or trying to find the place. I remember going (laughs) to job interviews back in the day, you know, right after college and I'd I walk around the neighborhood. I wouldn't know where I was going half the time. It's you know, so, there was nothing like so Google stressful. on your phone. Yeah, exactly. But it was still a no, video so, interview, right? Exactly. And that's that's actually really interesting. Oh, I no, think wow. that um, you know, you take those stressors away, and I thought it made me a better candidate because I was less stressed, so my personality shined more. Huh. Yeah, but George, wow. I mean, he I think it's so funny that he had no idea what I looked like. I mean, you could Google me. And I am a millennial. I know that's surprising to you guys. So there are pictures of me on the internet that I post myself. <laughs> um, so, it, but it's such an interesting dynamic, and the I think there's this massive level of trust. Um, but also, me and George and Paul in our conversations, we just clicked immediately, and so I'm just glad that I was able to shine even through just a phone call. And you didn't have any reluctance about switching jobs in the middle of a pandemic. What what kind of thoughts did you have? I mean, did you feel, I'm not sure what the actual timing was, but you had to be making the move when markets and economic situations were pretty volatile and the COVID thing was, was, still, was scary. still a much more of a and question Nicole mark than it is now. You're, you're in Manhattan, I mean, can you, Nicole, right? I am. I, yeah, I so am, you're in, like me, you're in the center of it. It's different too. I mean, the months of, you know, March absolutely. and April for people in New York were really crazy and frightening, you know? Mm-hmm. So unlike you, Jefferson, where I had to yell at you and tell you to wear a mask, you know, you were going around, <laughs> I don't need a mask. And I'm like, what is he doing down there? Wear a mask. <laughs> Oh, I'm, I'm standing next to a fishing well, that's, hole. That's one I'm thing. Safe. That's different. Not right now. You know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, I wear a mask. Believe me. I, for the record, I'd <laughs> like our listeners to know that I wear a mask uh, when I go out in public. I don't want to get any hate mail. More than I PSA, get already. Jeff Benjamin wears a mask. So anyway, Nicole, just if you could just, just kind of sum up that part of if you had any reluctance at all about switching jobs when it looked like <laughs> all hell was breaking um, loose. Well, I guess it, in an interesting fashion, I think what a lot of folks are feeling amid the pandemic is that reevaluation of your life in a sense, right? There are people who have reevaluated whether or not they actually like to live in New York and have moved back home or what have you. I have friends that have done that. Um, I uh-huh. like it here, so I'm going to stick around. Right. But so for me, it was that reevaluation when, you know, mid-March and especially April, I also had a birthday in April. So it was just this massive kind of reflection time for me um, and all this downtime. And I kind of just started to feel ready, you know, for a transition, I guess you could say. I think that, you know, I had my interview with Investment News towards the end of May. So things kind of normalize is not the proper term, but it you started to feel a bit more normal in this quarantine pandemic life than you did in April. So that also made me a bit more comfortable. Yeah, I mean, reluctant thoughts come through, but of course, naturally. But for me, I because I clicked really well with George and Paul and everything kind of moved very fast, I, I don't know, I had just this feeling that it felt right for me. 
And investment news is completely the type of publication that is very much up my alley that, um, you know, I'd want to be at for a long time in my career. So it was, the fit was just there for me. I think I just got lucky in a sense. Well, I know we're happy to have you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, Nicole, it's obvious from your, uh, you know, your first uh, weeks here and reading through your stories and listening to you in our news meetings, you're, you're in the right place. Uh, we love having you here. Welcome aboard. Thank you. Thank you. You know, it dawned on me, guys, that you haven't, no one's met me uh, in person, right? And you know what I think about is that you see me every day from my shoulders up. And I had the strangest thought the other day that no one knows how tall I am, which is a weird thought. And I'm totally an (laughs) average height. But for all you know, I'm 6'2". She can dunk. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. She can. Uh, she got hops. <laughs> well, for Jill coming in handy for that uh, that rec basketball team we're putting together. Okay. Well, I just want to say thank you to Nicole for uh, for coming by and talking about TikTok and for landing her job here at Investment News. Thanks to my my colleague and my cohort Jeff uh, Benjamin. Thanks to Team Extreme for helping uh, produce this. Uh, this has been the Investment News podcast. As you know, you can find us. Uh, a new episode every Monday. Uh, you can find it at investmentnews.com, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. We're, uh, we always want to hear some feedback or a review from our audience. You can uh, uh, reach us on Twitter. Uh, at Benji Ryder is Jeff Benjamin's Twitter handle. And Bruce Kelly is at BD News Guy. Uh, that's it for this week. And we'll be talking to you in seven days. Seven days.